This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, the internet, uh, all of the good stuff that you need to be across uh, on your Wednesday night. Uh, it's going to be a big show. i um, excited to have uh, one of the best crews in. We have Laura Summers. Hey, hey. How's your week been in tech? Uh, look, I've been running some research and getting some really interesting feedback about how people use tech, so it's been uh, informative. Mm. Oh, do you want to plug that? Oh, yeah. That's okay. Yes, that would be rad, if that's cool. I am running a survey. It is on um, Typeform. I will tweet the link because it's a little long <laughs> to say, but basically I'm just curious about how you use messaging apps. How many do you use? Like, how does it work for you? Do you forget things? Do you forget to reply to messages like I do all the time? So I'm just curious to find out. Also, Dan Salmon. How are you, Dan? I'm doing great, Warren. How are you? All right. What's uh, What's been going on for you? Oh, look, in tech, my week has been largely about uh, renaming a platform and getting the hive mind to be involved with it, and it is oh. um, hard. Hard. Let's yeah. just say. Let's just say that it, I'm I'm hoping that we just uh, keep the name that we've got. To be honest, I can't be bothered <laughs> continuing with it. Oh, Dan, naming naming things is like the hardest problem oh, in computer science. Oh my god, <laughs> it's just a nightmare. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So that's consuming my every waking moment. But it's great mm. to be in here with you guys. Mm. Uh, I'm Warren. Davies, I'll be with you also. Um, tonight on the show, uh, our rights are by no means guaranteed when it comes to technology. Um, we've got some basic protections in law, but uh, the Australian Human Rights Commission is taking a look at this with a two-year project to understand our rights, how we might protect them, and uh, I guess what we even think about them might be um, the first um, port of call. Uh, the Australian Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Edward Santo, will join us on the show uh, a little bit later on. Uh, also, how is uh, artificial intelligence bias being monitored? Um, we hear a lot of it um, uh, out there. Um, it's quite a regular topic, I guess, coming up in news. Um, and we'll be having a chat with Associate Professor Jeannie-Marie Patterson of Melbourne University uh, on the topic, who's been doing some work in that space. But um, before we get to that, there's a bit of news going on. Um, Laura, there's some stuff around my health. What's What's been happening there? Yeah, well, my health is um, this my health health record, which was supposed to roll out the um, creation of everyone's accounts from tomorrow onwards, has had a little bit of drama today as people have been trying to opt out frantically, and all of their systems have overloaded. Um, there's been quite a lot of Twitter going on where people have been very frustrated about waiting in line, waiting on phone calls for over an hour, just keep hopping back onto the website and having the website go down, or just um, one thing I saw repeatedly was people were trying to get through the forum to completely opt out and they'll get three quarters of the way through and then on that last submit button it'll like die which is everyone's least favorite problem (laughs) basically (laughs) um so yes the result of that after quite a lot of pressure is that the federal health minister greg hunt has decided to extend the deadline for opting out of the my health record system so we now have until january 31st 2019 which is mm. actually pretty rad. I think that's great because if people don't want to be on there ever, if they don't want to have an account ever created for them, it's pretty good to not like let that slip through by accident. Absolutely. And I think it's good that it's been such a high-profile decision made by the government because people who might not have even been aware that it was going to be happening are now seeing mm. it on the front page of most of the major news outlets. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think it's it's very reminiscent of the census debacle from not that long ago. Like, And I think people are kind of only really aware of these things when they really start to go horrible wrong Mm. but i suppose it's a good reminder that if you can't handle something simple like server load maybe you shouldn't be dealing with people's very personal private health data 
Mm. Um, and there's another vector to this story, which is that very recently um, there was a major, major resignation from this department. So Nicole Hunt was the former director of privacy for the um, health record, the digital health record, and she quit claiming that they weren't listening about privacy concerns. That was just last week. Yes, that's right. Mm. Um, So certainly her decision to leave in protest of them not actioning this and taking it seriously is a strong indicator, I think, that if you're worried about privacy, if you're worried about your healthcare data being accessible by, you know, maybe third parties, maybe not even just the government, um, then it's something that you should take seriously and action for yourself. One thing that uh, you should also take seriously is uh, fishing. Um, I haven't been fished yet, but um, I do get it uh, from time to time. Actually, I got... um, Oh, you've been fished? I was fished for the first time this year, and they tried to get me to pay them in Bitcoin, and I was like, (laughs) I'm a real techie now, it happened. Um, yeah, phishing, if, if you're not aware, is um, basically um, uh, nasty via your email or text message uh, or even through um, app notifications or what have you, um, taking you out to um, input your credentials to um, banking or to send money or, or something mm. like that. Um, there's a great service out there, um, Metacert, um, that was um, initially set up um, by founder um, as a way to uh, watch chat rooms for fake uh, Ethereum, Ethereum scams. So... Um, yeah, he was an early experimenter in cryptocurrencies, the founder, uh, Paul Walsh, and he was kind of frustrated by um, hackers who were sort of dumping fake links into chat rooms. So he's extended um, the service into uh, email now, um, and the the basic protocol behind Metacert um, allows people to... Um, Get these great little badges for links and emails. So if you get um, if you get a red link, um, you know it's potentially dangerous. And if you get a green link, um, then it's okay. Um, and they've got I think around ten billion classified URLs that are sort of um, considered safe. Mm. Um, so even if you shorten them or something like that, it's still going to get picked up by Metacert. So. I thought that was a great idea. Um, yeah, my dad actually yeah. sent me photos of his vertical garden um, this year, but um, I, it was actually safe. I was worried it was maybe a scam. <laughs> it didn't read that well, but, you know. Oh, <laughs> parents, grammar, <laughs> and emails. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing I, I, I um, just noticed uh, before you and Laura were talking about uh, getting fished for Bitcoin. Uh, the mm-hmm. ATO have uh, announced that Bitcoin is officially uh, uh, the largest method by which people are pretending to be the ATO uh, Fishing for uh, rather than oh. iTunes gift cards, really? so um, I just I just saw this article just now. So uh, people have been reported twenty eight thousand scam attempts to pretend pretending to be the AC, uh, the Australian tax office since the uh, the first of July. Obviously, after um, tax time, people have, have might have a bit of money, and so uh, mm. the the phishing scams kind of ramp up in that in that period. And it looks like that um, Bitcoin has finally pipped iTunes vouchers as the pre- preferred method of payment of choice for these fishers. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. So when you ask the question, what is cryptocurrency good for? The answer is... Stealing money. Stealing money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yatoshi Nakamura, I apologize, but... You know, mm. distributed banking was always an adorable myth. <laughs> <laughs> um, another um, kind of scam, I guess, um, involves mm. Nintendo. What's going on here, Laura? Oh, yeah. Um, great question. Let me pull that up. Sorry. <laughs> There's been um, some pirates have been have, Oh, that's right. Oh, yes. Um, a couple has been determined to have hosted a number of Nintendo games for a number of years and made them available to anyone for free. And they were finally nabbed. So they've been ordered to pay back $12 million for pirating games, um, which is... You know, a little sad for those of us who remember, like, the era of streaming music and um, 
what was the little that first service? Nap- just, Napster. Yes, Napster. You didn't remember Napster's just, name? I just lost it. I lost it. I had it in my mind, and then it slipped out. Okay, you're forgiven this once. Yes, mm. but you know, those of us who remember the Wild West days of the internet, where we were just so excited we could share files of any kind, it didn't really. The whole copyright IP thing didn't really cross anyone's mind. So this is true. Yes. Uh, as Torrent Freak reports, Jacob and Christian Mathias were sued in July for infringement of Nintendo's intellectual property rights, having hosted thousands of ROM files. So basically, they had digital copies of all of these games and made them free to download. Um, and a lot of them were old games. A lot of them were like probably not making them that much money, but I suppose there's still like the issue of lost revenue for the newer games. So yes, that was that was a um, bit of a bit of a sad day for those of you who are into the pirating and sort of like less less legit areas of the web mm. um another uh i'm not gonna call it a scam but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely one of the worst decisions i've seen made mm. um californian mm. company uh known as lime have are launching in australia now lime uh offer a bike for hire and scooters for hire uh much like the uh very very successful trial of o-bikes here in melbourne and i say successful with a huge amount of salt um so what we're going to be seeing uh is uh lime colored lime green colored bikes being launched in uh melbourne they're already uh being rolled out in sydney they were used uh there was a trial of them at the uh, Melbourne Cup last week. Mm-hmm. I don't know how successful it was, but they seem to be pushing ahead with it. So um, there will be, I think, yeah, watch out for some uh, even uglier-looking bikes and scooters being thrown into the river. Well, they're not just bikes even. They're e-bikes. Hey, e-bikes. So this they, is true. They, they have um, batteries. They're electronic. They give you a little extra oomph, so you don't have to necessarily do all the exercise of taking yourself around the city, but obviously like there's that extra waste and extra maintenance cost. Absolutely, um, and, and when they do go into the river, there's there's going to be all kinds of issues with the electrics in the bikes. Precisely. Yeah. So, so going into the river will start to like get very expensive for this company. Yeah. I, I look as as with every trial, you hope it goes well, but I just can't see. Like, surely they must have seen what was going on, and this is only what like four or five months ago. Yeah. I. Mm, I don't know. I'm I'm just reminded of the. Um, I don't know if this is actually like a old wives' tale of Silicon Valley or if it's a real company, but I'm reminded of the, the company that was supposedly came up with a new, innovative way to move people en masse in large buses and basically reinvented a bus service. <laughs> there were, I think their pitch was something like uber but for groups it's like yes what's you, a, so you've you chartered a bus so you've char- you've chartered a bus <laughs> congratulations you have innovated innovate plus <laughs> a 10 out of 10 for, for um, gumption at the very least if they yes. thought they could get away with that well that's true i suppose i suppose maybe if you just hope that you can like pure brashness pure, yeah yeah just like Go straight through and hope no one blinks. Basically, if uh, if you are interested in this and uh, take a vicarious thrill at kind of uh, some of these um, uh, things being destroyed, there is a great uh, Instagram account, uh, Bird Graveyard, um, of uh, scooters being destroyed uh, all around the world. People go to great lengths to get rid of these things, from throwing them off the top of multi-story car parks to um, burning them on mass. Um, there's some pretty elaborate stunts. Yeah, um, which is called well, Halloween sorry, pumpkin. The, yeah, the pumpkin, like someone. <laughs> Someone for Halloween put a pumpkin head on. It is the incredible. Top of a scooter, but like, like it's just. I mean, guys, they're not that easy to destroy. I mean, they're not that hard to destroy. You don't need to go to this effort. So it really is heartening to see people being creative. Oh, it's not. It's not even destruction. It's art. It's it is chaos art. and art and like a mass, a, a mass expression of, of culture. 
<laughs> We're really reading into this, aren't we? <laughs> we usually get around to talking about digital rights on the show, but we don't re- really have a bedrock to kind of uh, talk from. And um, thankfully, somebody has taken on this Herculean task <laughs> and is doing something about it. Um, the Australian Human Rights Commission um, are looking into uh, our digital rights um, at the moment. Uh, I guess the, the loose terms of reference are they're looking at the challenges and opportunities for human rights of emerging technology and innovative ways to ensure our human rights are prioritised uh, in the design and governance of emerging tech. So uh, we're joined on the line now uh, by uh, Human Rights Commissioner Edward Santow. Edward, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so, in terms of, um, I, I guess the the project and, and what your um, uh, what your first kind of port of call is, how do you get started on a project like this? Well, first, um, <laughs> I've got to feel very brave because it's a really big issue. Um, we uh, we at the Human Rights Commission are the experts on human rights, um, but we're not, um, you know, uh, coders or, or experts on, on tech. So, uh, we, we spent about six or eight months. Um, literally just informing ourselves better on what some of the issues and problems are. We've, we've been speaking with um, ordinary people in the community, uh, experts, um, tech experts as well as human rights experts and, and everyone in between. Uh, and, and really, uh, I guess what we're trying to do is get a clear sense about where the problems and the opportunities lie in this, uh, what's referred to now as the fourth industrial revolution. Great. And um, is there much of a team behind this? How, how many people do you have kind of uh, working on this project at the moment? Well, the, the Human Rights Commission isn't a vast organisation. Um, we've got about five people in our team, um, of which I'm one of them. And uh, but some of us, like myself, uh, have some other responsibilities as well. And I, I, my understanding is it's uh, kind of a, a, a two-year project um, and the first... Well, you're kind of in the, the listening phase at the moment. Um, what, what kinds of things are, are coming through that, that were either expected or unexpected um, from public feedback? Yeah, I mean, probably one of the biggest issues that has been raised with us has been about the rise of uh, artificial intelligence and um, particularly the way it's used in decision-making that affects people's basic human rights. Um, so... Uh, that, that's an exciting thing in many respects. Um, we know that uh, as, as humans, we don't necessarily um, always make the best decisions. Um, any photo you've ever seen of me from the 1980s is <laughs> that out. Um, but we and, and we know that um, that AI can uh, help us wrangle big data sets really effectively. So, so there are some unquestionably some really good opportunities there. On the other hand, there are, there are some really serious problems as well. Um, and I guess what we're just, and this is really the first year I think as a community we're wrapping our heads around this, we're just starting to see is the way in which um, AI can also bring about new types of discrimination. You know, algorithmic bias is something that uh, I think the community is just starting to understand. Um, and uh, then what we've got to do is, is actually do something about it and make sure uh, that we're not making our uh, community less equal. So uh, I, I guess um, uh, you know discrimination is is a very important one if we're talking about um, algorithmic bias. But um, I, I think things like privacy, um, transparency, um, very important. Um, has there been any sort of conversation around the assistance and access bill? Um, are people sort of fairly fluent with some of the the um, I guess battlegrounds around our rights at the moment? 
Yeah, so, look, I, I think there is uh, a growing understanding of the importance of encryption, um, and I think what the um, government has done with its bill here is it's been able to say, look, we, we believe that um, uh, encryption is important and that we shouldn't be creating a systemic weakness. What we, um, at the Commission, are saying in respect of that bill is that there are some significant problems, that, that it really needs to be um, improved in a number of respects in order for it to achieve um, those aims. Um, and so uh, certainly when we're speaking with tech companies as well as just ordinary individuals, and, and particularly human rights defenders, um, we're hearing that there needs to be some very uh, significant changes made to the bill in order um, to make sure that, uh, that, that you know, the national security protections are in place, but also um, the uh, uh, people's basic rights are protected. Um- I'm curious, do you, for, for those of us who are maybe less familiar with this bill, can you just give us the highlights of what are the most contentious points? Like, what's, what, what are the real issues that are being argued over right now? So, uh, essentially what the bill would do is that it would um, enable uh, the security services, the police and so on, to access people's communications through things like WhatsApp and, and other like online um, messenger services, uh, and um, you, you could it, it'll um, use traditional warrants as well as um, I guess some less traditional means to access um, those communications. But primarily in a law enforcement or a national security setting. Uh, the, the sort of things that we're worried about is that um, that the main means by which, um, say, someone wanted to that the police wanted to. Um, uh, obtain a suspect communications via WhatsApp. The main means that they'll be able to do that is uh, under the legislation is that um, it would send out a security patch um, and it'll look like a security patch that goes to everybody that has that particular uh, app on their um, smartphone. However, um, there'll be one specific difference <laughs> um, that will essentially enable um, the police or, or whoever it is to uh, view the communications of the one person that they're, um, that they're seeking, right? Or the, per- the people that that person is um, communicating with. Uh, and so um, I guess one of the things that we think is an, a potential unintended consequence is that if the community at large starts to worry that every time that they do you know, a new security patch on their, um, on their smartphone, that um, the government might be uh, listening into their communications and then essentially that will discourage um, people from doing their, their security updates, their, their, um, you know, their patches on their phone. Um, mm-hmm. And that in turn will make those communications platforms less stable um, because uh, it relies on um, what, what in the medical context is known as herd immunity. In other words, it, it relies on... Um, enough people in the community being kind of diligent about doing their updates. And so, so that's one of the things where, where we would say, um, while we understand the national security imperative behind it, we really need to think more carefully about uh, what might be, you know, the, the, the effect um, more broadly of that legislation passing in its current form. And are we, are we confident that all the app providers will actually comply with this 
law and agree to let basically backdoors be built into security patches? Like, is that something we're going to see sort of conflict over in the future if the law goes ahead? Well, I mean, I guess it remains to be seen. Um, it's certainly true that a number of these uh, big tech companies, some of these um, the, the groups that represent um, big and medium-sized tech companies have expressed serious concern about this law. Uh, they'll, there'll be some limited right to um, seek judicial review um, when they're compelled to provide this information. Um, but um, I guess there's also just the practical reality that a number of those big uh, tech companies are primarily based overseas. And so it can be difficult in practice for some of those orders to be enforced um, mm. by an Australian um, government or, or an Australian court. So, uh, look, the short answer is we, we don't know. Um, generally, tech companies are, are you know, very um, respectful organisations and will comply with the law. Um, but we just have to wait and see. Um, I'm reminded of when Malcolm Turnbull said, uh, the laws of mathematics are very commendable, but the only laws that apply in Australia is the law of Australia. And sort of this, like, it, it, I, I'm just curious. I mean, I'm bringing this up to be a little bit facetious, but also, um, like, I, I th- a concern I think a lot of us in the tech community have had is people who are writing law to try and enforce aspects of something like um uh, cryptography or security protocols that they don't really understand and they don't really know the implications like like this thing you're describing which is um, degrading the herd immunity um, uh, how are you trying to engage with the government to maybe help them understand these issues and, and make better decisions about them it's a great question and uh, I mean I think what we really have as a, as a challenge for us right now is um, I guess, a wide community gap between a small group of people that fully understand um, some of this new technology um, and the vast majority of people who, who don't. Um, and um, so it's really important at all levels of policy making that we, um, we understand uh, exactly the sorts of issues you're talking about, um, but, but also that we, we formulate laws um, that are based on that understanding. So as a as Human Rights Commissioner, um, we would always say that a law needs to be really carefully targeted. So there are certain situations where you can um, make some impingement on some basic human rights if, if uh, what you're trying to do is a legitimate aim. So in this case, protecting our national security is, is obviously a legitimate aim. But whenever you do that, it has to be really targeted and proportionate and no more than is absolutely necessary um, to achieve that, that national security or other aim. Um, and so what, what we think is a risk here is that if we don't fully understand, policymakers don't fully understand um, some of these uh, technological um, phenomena that they're grappling with, then it's less likely that we'll be able to um, fulfil those really important principles of proportionality uh, and necessity. Um. In terms of consulting, I'm, I'm really interested. Uh, I, I understand you're kind of in um, WA at the moment. What are some of the more... I mean, obviously, we've got the, the Prime Minister who's been up on a bus kind of touring around and then flying around. How kind of grassroots does it get? Do you get to kind of lean over the fence and kind of have a chat to, you know, um, 
all types of Australians about this or, or are you kind of um, sort of reading the reports and you're kind of having the, the best intelligence read to you? I, I'm interested to know the kind of gulf in types of um, input you get. Yeah, look, it's got to be both. Um, and that's something we take so seriously at the Human Rights Commission. So we, we, we absolutely are keyed into, uh, you know, the, the big policy wonk um, high tables, both in Australia and overseas. Um, and that's, that's important because you've got experts who are, um, who are bringing their expertise to bear. Um, but it has to um, be relatable um, for ordinary people. Um, so Lots of pub tests. We're, we're working, mm. Yeah, yeah, but we're working really hard, um, particularly, for example, with the University of Technology in Sydney um, to make sure that um, we're uh, reaching real people. Um, and so they've got a, a fantastic track record in how they undertake um, consultation uh, that, that really helps um, to do that and helps people, uh, I guess, understand um, the basic kind of principles that, that we're grappling with so that they can make an informed, um, have an informed say about something that is, that is changing incredibly quickly. And uh, what's uh, next from here? Uh, do you, have you got like maybe another month or two of community consultation to wrap up? Um, what, what's yes, the, that's exactly right. And yeah, what's so, the next step? So, so the next step for us is we're going to be putting out a discussion paper in the first half of next year. And the discussion paper will essentially set out our kind of draft template for change. So it may be some legal changes, but there may also be a whole suite of other things. And we mentioned education before, and we think that's a really, really important area. Um, so uh, we will then kind of, you know, muster all of our courage um, because it will be genuinely a draft um, template for change and reform. Uh, and then having mustered all our courage, we'll do a second round of consultation or you know, specifically invite people to tell us where we're absolutely wrong, where we may um, be on the right track but might need to refine our ideas a bit and where we may have got it right first time. Um, so that's, that's quite an extensive um, reform process. It's, it's you know, a, a very well-established gold standard of reform process, um, but it does take a bit of time. So we, as I said before, we take consultation really seriously, um, but it does take time. And so we're participating in a range of other Australian and international reform processes that have a have a more kind of immediate time frame and, and you've already mentioned one of them the, um, the assistance and access bill that is currently before um, the parliament we're giving evidence on that um, on Friday. Mm. Interesting I, I do have a question that kind of won't stray too far into this space but um, is it f- digital rights for people within Australia or for Australians? I mean obviously the Human Rights Commission has got a wide scope of reference there but is it just for sort of people with a, a passport or? No, no, so human rights are for all. Mm. Human rights are not about citizenship. They're, they're mm. fundamentally about um, the people that a country has jurisdiction over. So that's everybody, um, I guess, who's physically located in Australia, but mm. it also means um, other people who um, may be not located in Australia, but, but the Australian government is interacting with. So that's, mm. that's really, really important. Mm. If people want to have their say, what, what, uh, what can they do right now? Where should they go? So um, we've set up a, a dedicated website um, for this project. It's uh, tech.humanrights.gov.au. Um, so you can check out what we've got online. You can sign up to receive updates on our process. Um, where we've, we've finished taking written submissions in this first round of consultation, but as I say, next year we're going to be doing a second round of consultation and we'd be um, really, really grateful to receive 
um, submissions and, and input from people of all uh, walks of life. And, and submissions, I know, is sometimes a bit of a, um, a forbidding term because um, it can sound very formal. I have literally received uh, a submission on the back of a napkin before, and it was actually quite a useful submission. So it can literally be something very informal, a few dot points on an email, um, or, or something more formal as well. But we, we know that um, we've got some of the expertise now internally within the Commission that we, we won't be able to do as good a job as we need to do unless we continue to get really good input from um, people on the outside. And, and I can't tell you how grateful we have been today. We've, we've had fantastic input and buy-in from, um, from really everyone in um, civil society and more broadly. So that's, that's a really wonderful thing for us. Cool. Um, before you go, uh, you did mention that you're doing more consultation next year. Do you anticipate, um, in the light of what's been happening in the last 24 hours around my health records, do you imagine that there'll be a bit of feedback coming from that? I'm, I'm not sure what your opinion is on the whole thing, but, um, yeah, I, I would, I'd be interested to see if that um, colours anyone's opinions. Do you Maybe anticipate just anything a like signal that? boost, hey? Just a little bit? Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think... Um, yeah, we, we, I have spoken about my health record and um, expressed some serious concerns about um, the legislation as it was currently drafted, as it was originally drafted. Um, we're also pleased that um, the government um, has been ready to make changes and has, and has actually introduced um, changes. And as you say, um, the opt-out period looks like it'll be extended. So, so the, those things are really good. Um, and they're really important issues in and of themselves because... Um, you know, just speaking personally, I think it's really uh, important that wherever possible we can use um, big data sets to improve healthcare. But at the same time, we've got to be able to walk and chew gum, so we've got to make sure that people's um, privacy and other human rights are properly protected um, through a system like My Health, which is so uh, big and extensive. Um, so, so as I say, it's really important on, a, on its own terms, My Health. Um, but what I would also say is that I think it's, uh, you know, that some of these issues that we're talking about, like artificial intelligence, can seem um, achingly abstract at times. And what um, my health uh, does as a, as a practical um, issue that we're talking about in the community is it helps us understand how these big technological changes are actually starting to affect our lives right now. And so uh, I think that's, that's a really important part of the debate, um, to make it practical and real for people so that they can um, start to see how, how it's affecting them um, in a day-to-day way. Uh, Edward, thanks for thanks for your time tonight, and uh, thanks for um, giving us an insight as to as to what's going on. It'll be fascinating to to see what comes next. It's a pleasure talking to you. If you've ever wondered um, how your stuff's getting served up to you um, uh, through all your apps and services and who's deciding what you should see when or ever been frustrated by change in algorithms, uh, you are not alone. Um, but it's probably um, small change compared to um, some of the uh, greater biases that we find in uh, artificial intelligence and uh, a lot of the products that kind of drive our, our digital lives. Um, we're now joined in studio by Associate Professor uh, Johnny marie Patterson of University of Melbourne. Um, thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, it's a total pleasure. Um, how did you get into this? Were you offended personally by an algorithm and just went, okay, I'm going to kind of crack this like a detective? Or <laughs> what's your path into... Uh, well, my path into this is actually that my dad is an engineer. He worked on the space program. And when I was very small, he taught me to see a computer that took up about the size of this studio <laughs> times three. Um, and although I rebelled against being an engineer, the inner geek came back to haunt me. <laughs> 
Um, that's fascinating. Did did uh, what was the most kind of sophisticated um, software that your dad was kind of working with back then? Do you and, think? Well, he was he was using big, big, big computers that probably mm. don't have the processing capacity of an iPhone, mm. as we hear again and again. Which was being used in um, this. He actually worked on the Man on the Moon project, mm. um, and it had to have air conditioning to keep it cool enough because it produced so much heat that it would have set the building on fire. Wow. Um, So, yeah, so I came back to it. And I have to say I live with um, several coders and programmers who laugh at my technological incompetence. (laughs) Um, So would you say, um, on balance, a lot of AI has um, uh, kind of um, discrimination in it, baked into it, bias? I mean, I actually saw something yesterday from another... Melbourne University about um, artificial intelligence is morally neutral and I kind of went well I I think I see what you're trying to say there but it's only a product of its environment and if we're creating this and putting it out there and it's learning in this environment surely it's bringing a lot of the biases with it. I think that's right Um, artificial artificial intelligence is only as good as what's fed into it so if what we're feeding into it is Mm. the ordinary human um existence which is full of prejudice bias and lack of understanding that that's only how good it is Mm. um and one of the problems of artificial intelligence i think is it can do great things but because it's sort of science and maths we tend to think oh it must be right it must be accurate and in fact it's still it's still very much a, a a human creation, mm. um, a human creation that we start but don't perhaps control. We were just discussing off air. There's a great quote about this, which I can't quite remember, <laughs> but the it, the gist of it is an algorithm is more like a human opinion or an idea baked into code than it is like a scientific reality. And I think if you think about it that way is like my idea about the world, which I have encoded, literally encoded, then it makes a lot more sense why we're discovering all of these biases, which, you know, bias can be negative or positive. I mean, we think about bias when we think about also trying to ensure we have enough diversity in groups and we can like have a positive bias to try and move ourselves in the direction we want to go but I think that the really dangerous part is when it is unintended or unexamined um, so how do you how do you think about helping people unpack those ethical questions for themselves like how do you frame it well I think this there's two sides to understanding the risks of um, algorithmic bias or digital discrimination mm-hmm. and and the first one is um, that we I'm a consumer protection lawyer by trade and the thing about consumer protection is that you're usually dealing with um, what we call inequalities of bargaining power or information asymmetries in economic speak and the information asymmetry in the AI field is huge because most people have no idea how it works or even where it's being used. Mm. Um, So if we don't know it's being used and we don't know when it is being used what data it's, it's feeding off and we don't know what it's been asked to do, then we've almost got no chance to scrutinise it. And um, algorithms and artificial intelligence have a, have a beautiful benefit. They can be very consistent. They can make decisions that are consistent. But they're only going to make decisions that are consistent and fair if they've been... If the inputs, which is the um, information the algorithm's learning from, and the outputs, which are the decisions the algorithms are making, are scrutinised. We can't just go, oh, it's math, so we'll just leave it alone. We actually have to engage with it. So so how do we engage with it? How do we get to the people who are creating the inputs and um, get them mindful of these things so that the end product isn't 
as discriminatory as, as, as we see. Well, I work at a university, so of course I'm going to say we need university researchers to think very hard about it. But actually part of it is, is education. I know that um, universities now, when they're training people in computer science and software, are actually including ethics courses. They're teaching philosophy, they're teaching ethics. So they're asking the people who are doing the programming to think about those questions. The other end of the scale, I think we need education for people who are subject to these decisions to actually just say, to not assume the decisions are neutral, as you mm-hmm. say, to actually understand that the decision, that the our, an automated decision is only as good as the people who made it. And if you're subject to that decision, you should be questioning it. You know that old adage about question authority? Mm-hmm. You should be questioning authority, even if it's AI. Um, and going beyond that, I mean, I know you were talking to the Human Rights Commissioner earlier. I think we do need law reform. I think we need law reform to give us the tools to scrutinise these sorts of processes. I've been wondering if we need a essentially like a the equivalent of a Freedom of Information Act request to understand the current black box, which is the AI algo that, you know, some stuff goes in and then a decision comes about. And, you know, maybe that's the decision that decided if I could have a mortgage or not. Or maybe that's the thing that decides whether or not I get a longer jail sentence or something like quite serious to me. Or whether I even get interviewed for a job. Or if I, yes, exactly. Any of those things. That's right. Oh, do you want to talk about the Amazon um, research? Yeah. And and put uh, this in in mild quotes because they obviously totally borked the data set. Yeah. I I was just going to say, I love the way you put that. I mean, I think to say we need a freedom of information provision or something along those lines is a wonderful way to to put it. Mm. In fact, I'd put it as also we need a product safety standard. Right, like a consumer rights for Mm. digital AI um, outputs. That's a great idea. Yeah, We should come up with a snappy um, acronym for it right now. (laughs) (laughs) We can work on that. Okay, in the break. Do you want me to talk about Amazon Yes, while we're we're working on our snappy title? (laughs) Yeah, please Um, do. Well, and... This happened a couple of years ago, but it's only really come to light. Amazon um, wanted to develop a tool that allowed it to to sift through the hundreds of CVs it got from applicants for jobs at Amazon, tech jobs at Amazon. So it developed an AI tool that would make decisions to identify the people who were most suitable for the jobs who were being advertised or available. The problem was, um, and this does show a degree of scrutiny, um, that the algorithm they found um, sorted in favour of men. It, it sorted for men for those jobs um, and it sorted against women and it also sorted against the types of um, work experiences that women would have had. So if um, the example is if a man might have said, I was in a chess club, but if it was I was in a woman's chess club or if I um, belong, studied gender studies or um, perhaps some of those some of those sorts of things um, or I was pregnant... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, those CVs were discounted. And the reason for that was the data that had been fed into the algorithm was historical data from the previous 10 years about the type of people that worked in tech jobs. Mm. Now, they were men. So, of course, the algorithm, this is your point, the algorithm only is, is, no, is no more neutral than we are. The algorithm learned from the data that had been given, which is the best people for tech jobs are men, mm. Mm. Um, not not anybody else. And so we had a sorting tool that was actively discriminating against women. Um, And there's other examples um, in other um, environments where we've had that sort of problem, that that if you're learning from historical data and certain groups of people have been excluded from that data in the past, guess what? They're going to continue to be excluded. 
isn't it really just bad PR? Like, uh, surely we're kind of at the edge of this. This whole thing is just going to take off, and and it's going to work. Um, you know, it's going to be a painful journey for us, but it is going to work because it has to. Um, shouldn't we all just kind of say, well, that's that's to be expected, and we understand we're feeding in bad data, and there's going to be some glitches and so forth. But I'd, I'd hate to think that we kind of you know put our toys down and kind of go off and work on something else and try and you know have another 10 years of manually doing these types of tasks um i mean how do we get to better solutions quicker i guess i think that's a really good point i mean Mm. we know that ai can do lots of things useful things for us and Mm. particularly perhaps in the health field Mm. um it can be really useful Um, predicts death going into a hospital you know it can kind of look for signs of suicide on facebook it can well the looking for signs of suicide on facebook is is um useful but that itself is controversial Mm. as well i'd have to say but yeah i mean I'll hold that thought for a minute because there's all sorts of things related to scanning Facebook and social media Mm. posts that Mm. we might not actually want AI to do Mm. and that we need to think about. I think the point is just to think about it, is not to deify um, the artificial intelligence or try to pretend it's not happening. We need to actually seize it and go, hey, we need to know that it's happening and we need to demand accountability for what's happening. And we can't Mm. demand accountability if we don't know. I mean, we only found out about the Amazon tool because some engineers at Amazon, who I think may have left, revealed Mm. it to the public. Otherwise, Mm. we would Mm. never have known. Um, So we need to keep demanding accountability. We need to think about um, rules or laws or some sort of data commissioner Mm. um, that... that enables us to scrutinise and demand accountability. I've got an acronym. It's PSI. PSI. Product Safety Advocate for AI. Oh, that's oh. fantastic. That's actually fantastic. Yeah. That's, I, was, I was working on it. I was like, <laughs> why? Freedom of AI information? But that's really terrible. Yours is much better. <laughs> um, what, what, uh, where are some places where um, it's been done well, where good data is going in, there is accountability, um, uh, I mean, I, I don't think <laughs> it on. The look on your face is saying. <laughs> um, we should keep looking. Uh, yeah, we probably we probably should keep looking. Actually, I have a good example of that. Um, there's some really good work in AI being done in medical diagnostics. Yes. And it's a perfect example of there's the only negative bias is when there's a scan that has some kind of disease showing on it. So, like, the negative bias is correct, right? Like, if, if I look at a scan and I can identify correctly, like, an area which might be disease, then I've taught the AI the right thing. Mm. And I'm not introducing some kind of bias, which is about whether this person is a fat person or a skinny person or, like, you know, a person of colour or not a person of colour. So That's a good example. But even there, we need to be really careful because mm. I was listening recently to... Um, a discussion of a AI diagnostic tool. Now, you need to feed lots and lots of data in. That needs the data sets to be correctly labelled. <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's not even an AI problem. That's a database problem, yeah. right? Like, that's true. Yeah, that's garbage an Excel in, issue. Garbage out. And actually, I mean, I, mm. we're actually using robots now to do surgery, to mm. do really fine surgery. And mm. that's an example of AI as well. It's mm. robotics plus AI. Yeah. And the surgery outcomes from um, robots, surgical robots are really good. Mm. There's Da Vinci robot in the US, which does post prostate surgery very well mm. um so yeah there's lots of opportunities there but they i would actually add those are public generally public sector developments mm. um and the concern is when we're putting um a whole lot of data is available to private enterprises um who have what are called now data modes um held by gaffer which is <laughs> google <laughs> apple facebook and amazon 
Uh, and kind of we're seeing a shift in power, I think, to those really big tech companies, mm. which we can't necessarily assume is all for the good just because the tech companies are in California. Well, I mean, it's not even just California, right? It's China. Well, China yeah. is the other big competitor in AI. And, and in, that's and, true. And they're obviously like a little bit totalitarian and a little bit scary about the data that they both collect. And I mean, this whole thing with the new Google that was um, going to be implemented in China and they were going to force people to log in and identify themselves. So every Google search would be tagged against your national ID. Um, so obviously, like, they... They're not necessarily on the giving consumers their control over their privacy and data side of the... It's a nice point, a really nice point. Um, actually, Alibaba, which is the um, Chinese equivalent of um, Amazon, is the biggest growing tech company in the world. Its, it's rate of growth is bigger than any other business. Mm. So, yeah, the, mm. the, the sort of AI developments and that combining of fintech, um, shopping, <laughs> data analytics mm. it, it is having exponential growth in China. And you're right, that's not necessarily a system where there's scrutiny of the use of that data. So yes. the social credit regime in China is all about um, doing a whole lot of biometric tracking to actually yeah. watch what people are doing. Honestly, it's pretty much like Black Box. I'm oh, sorry, Black Mirror. Like It's, it's very similar to those It's episodes. beyond Black Mirror. <laughs> that's a scary statement. It's... Sorry, I was just going to say that actually what's being developed now is going beyond. At the moment, um, a, generally data is collected from what we input. I'm typing. I'm on radio and I'm typing mm. with my hands to demonstrate <laughs> my point. <laughs> but a, a, a lot of our data is connected from our, collected from our inputs into our computer. We are not very far away from data being collected from facial recognition. So we're starting to talk about advertising billboards that as you walk past will recognise your face and make a prediction about the type of ad you should be shown. We're not very far away from biometric screening to give us access to our devices and also for security purpose. So if th that's, that is black mirror with bells on, I guess. Mm. Mm. The that's cyberpunk, cyberpunk um, reality is here. Yeah, or <laughs> all, all, all sort of Blade Runner as well. Yeah. Or, you know. Totally, totally. Yeah, no, I, I heard a theory that William Gibson stopped writing cyberpunk novels because they came true. Yeah. <laughs> so... Interesting. I think um, we might have to get you back in for another one. I'm interested in this um, uh, topic of um, universal design. Um, it's really interesting, but um, it's a very timely piece of work that you're um, involved in. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming along and, and sort of um, telling us a little bit more about it. We appreciate it. Oh, and thanks for the acronym. <laughs> That's okay. We'll get some stickers made. <laughs> thank you to all of you uh, for tuning into the show tonight. Um, thank you to our guests, uh, Edward Santow, and uh, also uh, Jeannie Marie Patterson. Um, we hope you have a great night. Um, we'll be back next week with um, some different people, but talking about the same stuff. Uh, up next is Anthony Carew. Stick around. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.